This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Rodrigo Leong, CEO and co-founder of Samba Nova, an enterprise generative AI platform that's raised over $1 billion in funding. Rodrigo, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. Not a problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and maybe just a bit more about your background? Sure. Yeah, I've been in the enterprise hardware and chip development industry for almost 30 years, starting with Hewlett Packard and building some of the largest enterprise servers there, and then moving on to some startups, and then eventually finding myself at Sun Microsystems, building the hardware solutions for Sun and in their Spark line of processors. And then Sun was acquired by Oracle. And so I did that uh, with Oracle for about seven years before I started Sunmanova. Let's talk about that first job you had at HP. Take us back to, it looks like it was in 1993 that you started there. What was the tech ecosystem like? What was Silicon Valley like back then in the mid 90s? I'll tell you this, Brett. You know, so when I started, I was an undergrad and graduate student coming out of Stanford. And uh, my family, uh, immigrants from a number of places, uh, the last place before I came to the U.S. was Brazil. And so it was one of those first jobs that my family said, find something, find a job that's stable, that pays. And, you know, at the time, there was nothing, and there was nothing more stable than Hewlett Packard. You know what I mean? It's a, it was a company that's been around for a long, long time and was doing all sorts of different things. Dave Packard was still walking around. And it was just such a wonderful community. Now, this is before the dot-com boom and all the internet craze, but it was all about engineering, building great products, building products that you know, lasted for a long, long time. And that's what appealed to me. How important do you think it is to be in Silicon Valley today if you're starting a company? Look, I mean, innovation is just rampant here. I know there are a lot of other places in the world where there's just a lot of great innovation as well. You know, you see it in many, many pockets. But Silicon Valley has just a history of a lot of innovators, a lot of uh, risk takers. As a entrepreneur, you have to be comfortable with the risk that you take. You have to be comfortable with the uncertainty that comes with it. And I think Silicon Valley has a lot of people who have shared those journeys, have shared those same experiences, and and gives you some resources to be able to connect with and really be able to brainstorm. But look, there's a lot of great ideas, great people all over the place, but Silicon Valley is a special place. I know it's always hard to be forced to choose one, but I'm going to I'm gonna try to make you do it here. So if you had to choose one founder that you really admire the most, who is it and what do you admire about them? Look, there's so many people that people talk about from Dobbs to Larry to all sorts of different people. I worked for Larry Ellison at Oracle for seven years, so I'm always impressed by the company you built. But look, you know, I've worked for a number of founders over my career. And I think rather than the individual, I think is the quality that I really kind of hone in on. And I'll pick two, maybe not one, but two, two main qualities that I'd say are just fundamentally important and something that I really respect. And I actually attribute a lot of the success to it. I think one is resilience. You just got to be incredibly resilient to all the uncertainty, all the things that are coming down and stick to the vision, stick to the idea, stick to what it is that you want to build. And I, that's something I noticed so much with all of these founders that I work with, just that resilience to fight through all the things that need to be dealt with. But And then the second one is really attention to detail. Like every single one of those uh, founders, whether that was about their product 
or about the customer or about their own company and the culture of the company or about each of those things. And we think about Hewlett Packard and Dave Packard and the attention that was given to the HP way and building the right culture and building the right environment for innovation. I mean, to me, it's that attention to detail for what matters to you most is one of the most important qualities I've seen that I just really respect and try to emulate. Yeah, I recently read a book called The Difference Between God and Larry Ellison. God doesn't think he's Larry Ellison. And it had me thinking, you know, what is it like to work with this guy? So what was it like to work with Larry Ellison? I mean, incredibly passionate, somebody that's incredibly passionate about the business, understands the market in a way that many people just don't. I mean, the dynamics of a market and how it really works and really being able to then for a company that's 40 years old and with all the install base that it has to be able to actually react and adapt to all the changes during those multiple decades, it's a rare thing. It's a really rare thing. And so, you know, I mean, he knows the business and I think it's one of those people that, you know, you can learn a lot from. Another question we like to ask about are books. So how we like to frame this, and we got this from an author named Ryan Holiday. Uh, he calls them a quick book. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core. It really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind for you? You know, I, I read that, Brad, I read that one. And so that question, and I was like, well, how do I answer this? Because there doesn't, not one jumps out, even though a number of books jump out. I go back to, again, you know, same type of things rather than, you know, the specific book that hit me in that way, that kind of changed my entire thinking. I'm a big fan of reading books to take ideas. Really, the way I've actually learned how to actually do this in this business is not any one idea that's in the book really applies directly to the business that you have. And so really what I've actually come to really rely on is take the cues from really talking to a lot of customers and what they really say. Yeah, so I don't have that book that kind of hits me in that way that you described. There's so many different books that, you know, people have talked about, you know, from Blitz Scaling and things like that, that, you know, are, are all books that I think, you know, people should kind of take a look at. But I think end of the day for me, being very grounded on what customers are saying, what customers are telling you really educates you a lot on what it is that you've got to go do. Another way to ask that could be what book have you read more than any other book in your life? Like, do you have a specific book that you've read, you know, four or five, six times? I don't. I don't. I do usually don't reread books. I, you know, I read them, read them once, and then that, you know, I, I keep. Them. There's so many things that people have out there to teach you, but I usually don't read them multiple times. Let's switch gears now and let's dive a bit deeper into the company. So I think anyone listening in has, of course, heard of you. I think it's hard to not have heard of the company. But can you just try to paint a picture for us for what the platform does exactly? Yeah. So. We're a B2B, pure B2B company. If you look at enterprises trying to figure out how do they cross this chasm of pre-AI to post. And then this is akin to the internet, pre-internet to post. And what are all the things that you have to do? Most companies are struggling to figure out how do I actually even go about doing that, right? There's all this talk when it comes to AI about models. Is that GPT model? Is it this llama? Is it, you know, Falcon that? And there's so many different ideas of what model you should be using, what data sets you should be using, what hardware you should be using, which chips, which, I mean, there is just a sea of decisions that companies have to make. And frankly, not enough expertise in many of these companies. Machine learning experts are hard to find. And I think the world's changing so fast. And so what we decided to do with Sambanova is really become the company, the platform company that allows you to get a complete solution for business use cases. And so what we do at Sambanova is instead of you having to go hunt for your GPUs, 
figure out how to aggregate those GPUs together into a cluster to be able to run it. Then figure out how to decide which model of the hundreds of thousands of models out there in the open source, which ones to use. Then figure out how, which data to train, which applications to use, which has to optimize for. How do I prevent from hallucinations? Is it secure? All of the things that you have to just do if you're trying to do these things by yourself, someone other comes in and will give you a complete platform. Right? Hardware, software, models, all pre-trained, ready to go for the enterprise with all the things that enterprises have to think about. We actually have those all pre-packaged into an environment, roll it in wherever you want, including on-prem, and we run it as a service for you. Subscribe, people subscribe to the service, and they get the hardware, the software, the models, all pre-trained and ready to go. And effectively, you can have your own private GPT where you can trade on your own data and have the knowledge about your business, your products, your services within your own firewalls, if that's what you want, and running as a service without having to invest in all of that infrastructure and all of that expertise in-house. So I have an index that I use for myself on emerging technology called the mom index. So it's whenever my mom asks me about an emerging technology, I know that it's starting to get into mainstream. So maybe 2016, it was Bitcoin, 2021, it was the metaverse. And you know, of course, with ChatGPT, my mom recently asked me about AI. So AI is everywhere. You know, everyone's talking about it, even people you know, way, way far away from like the world of technology. So for you, what's that been like? I think it was November was probably that big you know, trigger moment where the world really started to pay attention to AI. At least it seems like from my perspective, what's that been like for you, you know, running this company? Has it just been crazy since November? Brad, it's been just a step function in activity. Again, we're, our company, we're just about six years old and we've done artificial intelligence platforms for all sorts of use cases from satellite imaging to medical imaging to large language models to well, a variety of things. And for years, uh, it took us a lot of energy to explain to people what artificial intelligence was all about and what you could do with it. But come November of 2022, ChatGPT shows up. And what you see is artificial intelligence is actually far more than what ChatGPT does. Right, ChatGPT gives you one capability among many that artificial intelligence brings. But what it did do is it put at least that one capability, that one use case, that one very innovative use case in everybody's fingertips. Right, it made it very real. It made it made people get a sense of what could AI do that you could not do before. And so what's happened now since is many people have tried it, many people have experienced it, many people also have now discovered that there's some. The gaps of where I can use it, where I cannot use it. And so for us, it's just been an incredible opportunity because we can go to most companies and say, hey, you like ChatGPT? I'll give you your own, right? I'll give you your own secure one, train on your private data that you can control and you can own in perpetuity, right? And so I think that's what it's allowed us to go do and just in a very simplistic, probably oversimplified way, allow us to articulate what it is that we build for companies and the value that you get of model ownership of actually having the secure, having on your private data. You know how another guest described it to me is they said, you know, they spent the years before November 2022, that was all about trying like hell to create demand and you know, get demand going there so people would actually, you know, want a solution like this. And then post November 2022, it's just been a war and a battle to capture demand. Has that been similar for you? That's right. I mean, it's been like that. And I think with all the noise out there, you know, you had previous to ChatGPT, the battle around getting attention and explaining. Now is the battle of noise. There's so much as every company is a generative AI company, even companies that weren't doing any generative AI before November suddenly is a gen AI company. And we all know that it takes more than six months to actually create any type of core generative AI technology. And, and we've been around for six years. And so 
being able to kind of go in and explain with some depth of exactly what it is, what it is that you're buying, what it is that you need to go think about, because AI is a multi-year journey. It's probably going to be something that most companies will embark on for the next 10, 15 years as a transition. And so you want to be thinking about things that you will need not just for today, but over the many, next many, many years. And I think fighting through all that noise and be able to articulate to people why this is different from somebody else's solution. It's been a 180 degree change as far as kind of what type of interaction you have out in the marketplace. What are you doing to rise above all that noise? What does that look like? Well, I mean, the reality is when it comes to hardware, there are very few players that actually have hardware. And the fact that we're the most credible alternative to NVIDIA and we're able to actually deploy that with full models, pre-trained and solutions uh, ready to go, differentiates us. And so if you don't want to go around hunting for GPUs and if you're waiting a year for it, and uh, you know we are able to deploy them without having those dependencies on anybody's hardware. I mean, today we train the largest open source language model, 176 billion parameter models that allow people to do multilingual natural language processing for whatever it is that they want. And that's done 100% on some of the hardware. And just so the fact that we have our own chips, our own boards, our own servers, our own models, our own software stack, all of that, kind of like your iPhone, right? You have everything self-enclosed. You actually subscribe to that service. Everything shows up and you're up and running day one, becomes an extremely attractive option for people who are just tired of hunting for GPUs and waiting, waiting to get their allocation. If we go back to 2017, when you were first starting the company, I'm sure you had some thoughts about what the future was going to look like with AI. You know, take yourself back to that time. Do you think you would have thought AI would be further along or about where it is or further behind? All of the above. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the conviction we have around artificial intelligence was back to first principles that you look at what capabilities AI is able to provide the world, you just cannot do without it. Right? And similar to the internet, when internet came in and you suddenly could take industries and markets that were very locally constrained to being able to ship globally out of a garage, right? those types of unlocking were just step functions. There's just no way to do it without the internet. AI is creating the same type of opportunity. That's just the first principle thing where you can actually process more information and create a predictive result far, far better than anything that's before that, that existed before. And so that trend line has been realized and probably realized faster than most people think, especially as you look at kind of what these generative AI models can do now and be able to write long paragraphs, write long essays, be very intelligent about the quality of the result. Now, that said, you have other things that kind of have taken longer than we thought. You think about kind of you know, most community, you say, hey, all the buzz, are we at the peak of AI buzz and all of that? And yet I tell people, global GDP frequently is powered by enterprise spend. And if you talk to all the global 2000, most enterprises have yet to start to put AI in production. Right? If you just ask me, give me a number, what percent of your business is running for AI? If you ask what percent of your business is running on internet, they'll say 95%. It touches every workflow, every person, every workflow, everything I do touches the internet. Okay, so now what percent of your workflow is on AI? 5%, maybe less, right? And so I look at that as, you know, with all the hype, with all the excitement, with all of that, why are enterprises still a low single digit deployment of AI into production for their you know, business critical workflows? Because yet the businesses are just getting started, right? And so that's taking longer than we all thought. And I think 
it's already in a state where so much of the world's already on AI, and yet you got the large amount of demand still yet to come. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. You'd mentioned there at the start of the interview about resilience. So let's talk about resilience. Have there been any just very difficult moments that you've experienced throughout building this company and maybe any untold stories that you can share? Because when I Google your name, when I Google the company's name, you know, I see success. There's all of this positive media coverage, all these great stories about what you're doing, but are there any untold stories there? Oh yeah. I mean, and look, every startup, you've got to fight through all the things, you know, there are yeah, I remember days where you were trying to build models and, you know, as soon as you build one, a new model showed up, right? I mean, the, the cycle time that you took you to actually get models trained and trained correctly was longer than the time that the market was interested in the model you had, right? And so there are times when you're just thinking, can we keep up with it, right? And can we keep up with all of that? And the team had to keep going and taking on the new models and figure out how to evolve those. And and so th that that's just nature of of uh, the market as we stand. And you have to stay on top of it. You have to stay in the game and continue to compete. And today we have the largest open source NLP model out there called Bloom Chat, and and that's something that we're really proud of. That we're out there. You know, we've got some of the most sophisticated models out there. The largest open source multilingual model out there. And and it's all because you just stay in it, stay in it, stay in it, even when you're competing with organizations that are a hundred times your size, with probably a hundred times the budgets that you have then you, you have to compete and you just have to stay on top of it because there are going to be challenges that at times feel like they're unsurmountable, right? But if you have conviction around what you're building, conviction about the technology that you have, understanding of what it takes to actually enable businesses to take advantage of it, I think sooner or later, that resilience will pay off. Did you ever have any near-death experiences? Yeah, as a company, look, we've been so fortunate in that, to me, as a startup, the first thing that your lifeblood is your cash. Uh, we raised a billion dollars in the first three and a half years. And some of it really ultimately was lessons learned from previous experiences that when you're an enterprise, when you're an enterprise doing full stack, meaning, and when I say full stack, it's from chips all the way to the models. It was one of the most ambitious things that, that anybody's doing today as far as designing their own chips and, and training, pre-training your own GPT models on behalf of the customer, right? That's and everything you've been doing. But to be able to do that, you know, you have to actually have a lot of resources in terms of people who understand all of those things. You have to have a lot of machines, a lot of chips, a lot of a lot of infrastructure that allows you to do all those things. And any one of those things is a significant investment in cash. And running out of cash, ultimately, that's the lifeblood of companies. And so we've been very fortunate that from the beginning, we raised a lot of money from a lot of very supportive investors who understood the mission of the company, understood the magnitude of the undertaking, and then were able to actually keep us well-funded and well-supported, realize what we have today, right? Which is, again, an incredible journey so far with all the support of those investors to be able to come together and have a full end-to-end -end stack with our own chips, our own systems, and our own models that nobody else has. How did you master that skill of fundraising? Yeah, with over a billion raised, I think everyone would have to agree, you must be a very talented fundraiser. So where did that skill come from for you? Did you have that when you were starting the company or is that something you really just developed over the last six years? Well, fundraising, again, there is a skill, but ultimately you have to actually have the idea. 
you actually have to have a path to realize that idea, right? And so for us, very early on with my two co-founders, Kunle Onukutin and uh, Chris Ray from Stanford, two Stanford professors, we had a lot of really good work already done from Stanford that gave us confidence that and this was the right solution. And then very quickly being able to then find like-minded people. And again, uh, very early, we were able to bring in folks like Lutan and others that have been in this space for a long, long time who shared the outlook on the market, shared the outlook on how the technology would, would evolve, and ultimately had the convictions around taking on such a big challenge, right? And so for us, it's always been about finding like-minded folks. If you can find like-minded folks that understand what you're doing and appreciate the value that you're bringing to market, I think all the other things fall in line, right? So whether it's a billion, two billion, half a billion, right? To me, those are just figures. I think more importantly is, can you bring supportive investors right, that can understand what it is you're doing, understand the opportunity that we're taking on. And then that momentum that accretes as you're going from series A to series B to series C, and you're proving each milestone, that allows you to actually build confidence, not just in existing uh, investor base, but the new investors that are coming in and getting excited about it, they're more comfortable coming in and supporting these uh, large raises. And if we go, you know, deep inside your head there in 2017, when you were first starting, what was the intention? Was the intention to build a big, massive, multi-billion dollar company that was going to you know, bring enterprise AI to organizations all over the world? Like, did you have that big ambition at the time or did it start to develop as you started to develop the product more? We did. I mean, once we actually decided that we needed to actually build a new token substrate and having been in this industry near 30 years, it just became clear that as a startup, is a startup that is going to be coming in with less of an ecosystem, with fewer partners than incumbents, with less time and you know, soak time with developers, that you have to completely you have to provide a more complete solution so that people can try out your technology faster. Right. And so as soon as we had decided that the right answer is data flow architecture for the new semiconductor offering. Then you had to take it up to a level of interface that allowed most people to actually engage with you without having to learn a new hardware coding language or anything like that, right? And, and PyTorch has been great. PyTorch in the world of AI is kind of the Java of AI. And so it allowed us a industry standard interface to talk to that now has created a common API for the rest of the world to actually you know, program to, and then we can actually do the automated translation of those models down to the hardware. And so, so we've always kind of thought about that as a way that we could actually significantly accelerate the value to our customers, but also allow us to compete in an environment where you don't have that much time to build that ecosystem, to build a developer community, to do all the things that more traditional chip companies would do, but we wanted to take a more complete solution approach to it. If we reflect on the success you've achieved so far, what do you think you've gotten right? I'm sure there's been a lot of things you've gotten right, probably a lot of things you've gotten wrong, but if we had to pick out just a couple of those things, like what would they be? Well, I mean, a lot of people look at kind of what, what happened during the supply chain crisis and we were still shipping within 30 days all throughout, throughout that entire time where everybody was uh, scrambling to figure out how to actually get certain supply. One of the things that we did right was we raised a lot of money and we used that money to actually manage our supply chain. 
right? Pre-buy a lot of the material, making sure that as a startup, we had gotten it right and demand was there, that we were not going to fail because we didn't order enough parts. And so so we did that and that that's played out well for us. I think raising raising capital and raising capital early, I think played out well. I always uh, say that uh, your cash is your lifeblood as a startup and you've got to have enough of it. And you have to account for the fact that not everything is going to go a straight line and you have to make sure that you have enough funds to be able to adjust and adapt. And I think both those things, I think, have, have played out pretty well for us. What was it like raising that? I think it was your Series D was $676 million. What was that like to do a transaction for $676 million? Like, were you numb to it at that point? You've raised some other big rounds before. Like, was that just another transaction to you or is that one a big deal? No, that was a big deal. I mean, it was a it was a big deal that happened very, very quickly, and it happened very quickly with some really top tier investors, right? And so we had uh, SoftBank leading our it was a six hundred seventy million dollar round that was led by SoftBank, and we had Temasek and GIC that were new investors that came in that round as well. And most of our insiders came right back in, including the BlackRock and Google and Intel, you know. And so, so we had a lot of the existing investors come in on that round, which really showed a lot of support, even from uh, investors that are traditionally early stage investors coming in right on a series D was just a something we we're really proud of. But yeah, I mean, it, anytime you raise a sum like that is eye, eye popping and something that uh, we're incredibly grateful because you have to find supportive investors like that, supportive investors that understand the journey and and people that you know look at uh, what you're doing with uh, with the same outlook that you have. You know, there's always risk at this stage of a company. And yet, uh, finding folks that are entrusting us with their money to actually go and try to attack the market, that's something that, you know, just we're always very grateful of for the trust and then incredibly appreciative of the support. Because of the success you're seeing, do you ever find it hard to remain humble and, and have your team remain humble, for lack of a better description? And some more context there. What I've heard in other interviews with founders who built unicorn companies is they say that, you know, when all of these news articles start coming out, all of this positive press comes out, then you kind of lose some of that hunger that you had in the early days and they have to fight like crazy to ensure that doesn't happen. Has that been the case for you? No, Brad. I mean, look, we can raise a lot of money and you know, we can be a $5 billion company and you look around, we've got trillion dollar companies competing in our space, right? Whether that's uh, NVIDIA being you're probably the most well-known out of them all. They've done a tremendous job competing there and and many others who, I mean, they're just giants in their space and very successful companies. And so we've, we've never had that problem. I think uh, startup to me is a mentality. It doesn't matter how much money you raise. It doesn't matter how much people value you. It doesn't even matter how much revenue you're bringing in. It's really about, you know, the mindset of it's our job to go create technology that disrupts the market and create something new. And we've got to go and show the world. We've got to show the world what that is and show the world what value it brings. And if you actually start with that mentality, it's an uphill battle that when we all, all have to stay hungry and go win it, right? Because the incumbents have been there for a long time and people know who they are and they're ready to, uh, you know, they're always ready to to compete with you. And when they're so much bigger, it's uh, you're never short of motivation to go compete. <laughs> Let's imagine that I, I came to you and I said, Rodrigo, I'm you know, I'm a founder. I'm, I'm starting a enterprise AI platform. What would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to me? Well, raise money. <laughs> raise a lot of money. Uh, the enterprise space, 
as you know, and many of your listeners know, is one where people want to see continuity. They want to see that you're going to be around and be around for a long time. They want to see continued innovation and, and products that is consistently being delivered over time. And so you need to be able to actually fund those. You need to be able to actually do that consistently year after year after year, because you know, it's not just a one-time show. You, know, you show up one time and be done, right? And so I always encourage people making sure to raise money from the right players too, right? You find people that understand your space, find people that understand the market you're going into and make sure they're on the same journey with you, right? Because there's always a lot of uncertainty when you come going to new space and whether you can compete or not. But if people understand how it is that you're going to go about it and all the corrective twists and turns that you have to make as the market evolves, then I think you're in good shape. I have to imagine at some point you've entertain the idea of going public, you know, given the size of the company. Are you excited about that idea of potentially being a public CEO someday? Does that scare you? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Because I've heard mixed things from unicorn founders that I've interviewed. Some are really, really excited about it. And some say, uh, you know, not super excited about that chapter. So what are your views on that? Well, it'd be great. I mean, it would be a great day if we you know, decide to go that route. Again, to me, an IPO is another fundraising event in my eyes, right? It's a, it's a fundraising event that brings additional investments into the company that allows us to do things that we can do, but probably more importantly, gives us a level of visibility that private companies don't have, right? Once you are actually on the market and people are at, well, watching you. And again, I think that level of visibility only comes if your company is doing well. Right. And then you're getting the coverage that you're expecting. But if all of those things are true and you're doing well, you get a lot of benefit from being in the public eye. Right. And like you said, it, it comes with all sorts of other things that you have to do. There's a lot more disclosure that you have to make and things like that. And so for us, you know, as we, when we look at the right timing for it, you know, but for us, ultimately, it's about building our business and building a business and making sure that our customers are able to actually take advantage of our technology and they're consistently getting value out of it. And if we stay true to kind of the basics of business, which is solve a real problem and show people that it brings value to their business, if you just stick to that, I think everything works itself out. What's your superpower? If I were to ask you know, everyone on your team what your superpower is, what would they say it is? I don't know what others would say. You know, I do feel extremely fortunate to be able to actually work with some really amazing people, right? Yeah, at one point uh, in the company, 80% of the company have worked with me for more than 10 years. And, and just being able to have you know, just amazingly talented people that want to work with you and join you on a journey, even when the journey isn't very well mapped out yet because it's early stage that you're able to actually bring people together, right? And, and this company, we're 500 people now, but being able to find that amazing talent and have them come join you on the journey as you grow. And each time that we grow, bring more great people that can add to the uh, talent that you already have. I think that's just something that I'm incredibly proud of, that we're able to assemble from our own employees to advisors, to our investors, to our partners, just amazing folks that helped us uh, throughout all those steps in the journey from Series A all the way through to today. That is something that I, I'm really proud of being able to do. I'm really fortunate to have all these amazing people that decided you know, to either make this their next step in their careers or take a significant amount of time as investors, advisors, and partners to actually make some maneuver a priority for them, right? And so I do think that you know, startups, especially uh, startups taking on challenges like ours, you do need partners and you do need uh, uh, people who are willing to help you. And I think uh, 
uh, we've been incredibly fortunate to be able to find those types of people and be able to actually bring them together on the journey with us. Final question for you, since we're almost up on time. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. Can you paint a picture for us? What's the future going to look like? Look, AI is going to be everywhere, just like the internet is. It's going to touch every aspect of our lives in every single moment of our workplace. And so if you think about the productivity enhancements that AI is going to bring, it's going to be a 10x improvement in productivity for every knowledge worker on this planet. I'm going to say this again, a 10x productivity improvement for every knowledge worker on this planet. The amount of time it takes us to research, analyze, assemble, do all the iterations, present, all of that work that all of us have to do in preparation for any one decision that has to be made can be done by AI models in three seconds. Right? And so if you think about all of that work today that disappears, how will productivity not increase by 10x? Right? And that's going to happen for people who are doing software coding, to people doing legal contracts, to do people doing marketing slides, to your contact center people actually doing customer calls, all the way throughout, right? And so productivity is going to increase 10x, which means pace of commerce is going to increase by 10x. And so just like the internet where people who embraced it got significant leg up on the impacts to commerce because of the internet, I think AI is going to have a very similar trajectory that people who embrace it are going to have a disproportionate advantage in over the next 10 to 15 years in capturing market because the pace of commerce is going to increase, it's going to be broader, it's going to be faster. Amazing. Love the vision. And I, I really love this conversation. I learned a lot from you and I know the audience is going to really enjoy it as well. Before we do wrap up the interview here, if any founders listening in just want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Well, certainly they can follow me on LinkedIn. You know, it's Rodrigo Leong and L-I-A-N-G on LinkedIn. And that's where we keep most of our activity as far as what we're doing. Certainly, if you want to follow the company as Summonova.ai is really where the companies post most of the major progress and they can reach out to me there as well. Amazing. Rodrigo, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. And again, I, I love this conversation. It's been a blast. Yeah, thanks so much, Brett. All right, keep in touch.